Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Our guest today is Ginny Choi. She's a program director of academic and student programs, a senior fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics, and a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. She's the co-author with Virgil Store of Do Markets Corrupt Our Morals? Welcome to the show, Ginny. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited for our conversation today. I guess I'll just start with, well, do they? I think the short answer to that is no, they don't. They don't. And in fact, so um, we believe that the markets are uh, morally enriching. Is this a philosoph? I mean, there's a a lot of philosophical points that could be made about the connections that are brought. You could make them about you know governmental actors and say democracy makes us care about each other, which some people argue, and and you could just make a philosophical point. But are you making an empirical point too? Um, yes. And um, our book um, is, uh, was ins- we were inspired to write the book because we were particularly dissatisfied with um, the um, apparent consensus among even the uh, defenders and critics of markets that um, markets seem to be morally corrupting. And uh, we, were, we wrote the book directly responding to that. And uh, one of the things that we also noted as we were going through the literature was that um, the question, do markets corrupt our morals, is not just a deontological point, right? Like it's also a, um, a question that we could um, uh, explore looking at existing um, empirical literature. Um, so um, that's what we did here. Before we dive into that, because there's your book is dense with empirical literature, to just clarify, this is a book about the impact of markets and a market society on us. So what do you mean by a market society? Yeah, so um, generally speaking, when we talk about uh, market societies, the definition that we've been uh, working with are those societies that have, um, that don't embrace the markets and don't have a lot of interventions and other things in place that prohibit the free operation of the market within that society. Um, so it's a, um, it's, I get that um, that definition might seem a little um, uh, vague for some people, um, especially when we're trying to, uh, when we're thinking, uh, when they're thinking about sort of finding empirical traction using that uh, particular definition, but it is effectively um, looking at the free operation of markets within society. So in many Western countries, you have some pretty harsh non-market forces, some of what people might call welfare states, generous welfare states in particular, to be non-market oriented. So will we make a distinction between, say, Denmark and America, or maybe Denmark and Hong Kong in 1985 in terms of how market-based they are? Um, yeah, so um, we, in order to sort of determine whether a country is uh, what we uh, in the book define as market society or not, we use five different indices to sort of um, determine that. Um, and what we uh, what we see is that, um, at least according to these indices, um, that um, places like Denmark that have high sort of um, high wealth, um, a large welfare state, and places like the United States that have less of a welfare state. They're both considered to be um, be embracing of markets. 
And um, we, uh, we embrace that too. Um, we think there's different flavors of um, market societies. I think um, it's important that uh, what, uh, whichever version of the market that a particular society has needs to uh, really work with what's going uh, with the country that it feels natural to uh, the member, uh, the citizens of that country. So uh, according to um, our sort of initial sort of um, look at the indices as we're categorizing different countries into uh, markets versus non-market, um, we found that both Denmark and United States and uh, similar countries are all considered to be market societies. You have this quote from an author named McNally in the book that I rather like that's about the way that markets or market agents get portrayed in our in our society. And, and it is a really striking thing. So McNally writes... Tales of body snatching, vampirism, organ theft, and zombie economics all comprise multiple imaginings of the risk to bodily integrity that inhere in a society in which individual survival requires selling our life energies to people on the market. And this is, I mean, it, it's it's hyperbolic, but it's common, I suppose. And and it does seem to be the case that in so many of our our movies and our novels and shows and so on, like the, the market agents, the the businessman or the merchant or the boss are just these absolutely vile, evil people who embody everything that we should try to escape from in our moral character, which is odd in a society that's so dominated by markets. Like, why is this? Why do we have such this kind of complicated and negative view of of market actors? I think um, it has a lot to do with um, the experiences that we have, right? Like it's not, uh, and I think it's, uh, for instance, in recent years, um, we've seen a lot of bad happening um, that I think are associated with markets, right? Um, for instance, uh, we in the, um, in the last 20 years alone, we had Enron happen um, and we saw uh, Bernie Madoff um, you know, so uh, make the headlines find out that um, his hedge fund was a it's a Ponzi scheme. The same year, um, the Great uh, Recession um, happened, and 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 then we also saw sort of the uh, Occupy Wall Street movement, and then more recently, we now have the anti-work movement. Uh, sorry, the anti-work movement, right? Uh, where um, during the pandemic, people. Uh, spent a lot of their energy, dedicated a lot of their time to work to make sure that uh, their um, uh, their businesses, their companies are staying, uh, uh, you know, making it through the pandemic. During that time, they uh, put in more time, they put in more energy to their work with um, some of the bosses saying like, look, I know it's a really hard time right now, but um, once we go back to normal, there will be a reward for all the effort that you put in right now. There will be promotions or there will be bonuses or um, something, um, those kinds of uh, uh, rewards as uh, for the efforts that they put in. And once things started turning, uh, returning back to normal, that uh, didn't seem to be the case, at least across the board, right? So you see a lot of um, workers now um, either looking for new jobs they've left, um, they felt betrayed, they felt let down by their uh, companies and they're leaving to find others. And um, over the pandemic, some of them have found that this wasn't the type of career that they wanted. So they're now looking for um, looking to switch and find 
uh, careers um, in other industries and all of that. So I think um, a lot of the negative uh, publicity that market gets um, is arising from our personal experiences. Um, and I and while I, um, I certainly don't mean to say, like, let's downplay that, like the, the sense of betrayal that um, employees uh, feel from their um, employers, I think that's real. And I never want to say that's something that we should downplay. But those are punctuated moments, I think, where there's a very high uh, level of negative sentiment um, towards workplaces, towards the market. And in those times, we forget about all the really awesome things that happen on a daily basis, right? Uh, for instance, during the pandemic, um, a lot of uh, communities um, tried to help out their local businesses. There was, a, at least in the um, in the area that I live in, there was a lot of push for like, oh my goodness, like this wonderful restaurant or this wonderful mom and pop store is, ha- is really struggling over the pandemic. Um, and it's really important to us that um, this particular restaurant, this particular business uh, remains with us within the community. Let's go uh, spend our money there. Let's not go to... Um, Starbucks. Let's not go to um, Dunkin' Donuts. Let's go to our local coffee shop so that we have um, that um, that so that they too can also um, uh, survive with us through these um, pretty difficult times. So, and those are really great moments. I think those are re- uh, really. I wish those kinds of um, events actually make the news more often. But I also do understand that the sort of uh, the wave of uh, current events um, and the incentives behind, um, you know, what uh, what type of events and news get picked up. I totally get all of that, but it's those everyday experiences that I think um, that uh, we uh, people tend to sort of um, brush aside, and I think we need to keep that in mind. There's something to this critique, though, because one of the things that you hear from at least anti-capitalists is the idea that. I mean, what value are you to your employer fundamentally? Like, why are you there? When will you be fired? Like, you'll be fired when your contribution value, which is different than our value as a human being, and like equating those two things together, it seems like one of the things capitalism is prone to doing that you say, we, this person earned a million dollars last year because of what they did, uh, and this person earned $20,000. Um, and so there seems to be something about equating that value, but either way, your employers only has you there. They may be friendly to you. They may ask about your family, but they only have you there as long as you're worth it to them. So isn't that dehumanizing in and of itself? Yeah. And I, um, again, I, that's not something I want, uh, that we, uh, want to sort of dismiss, right? Like I think, um, it is, uh, one, a unfortunate dynamic, I think as a company or, a particular organization grows too big, um, and and I think we all experience this in our own sort of um, social lives, right? Like as um, our um, network grows and the group of people that we um, interact with on a regular basis grows, I think the unfortunate part that happens there is some people who are at the periphery become sort of, uh, uh, you know, like we don't. Um, treat them the way we would have treated them had they been closer to us, closer to our core network, when the network, our social networks were smaller. So I think that's an, unfor- um, that's a, just um, the unfortunate reality in sort of as particular organizations grows that, that would happen. 
Um, and I think um, there's sort of waves of things that happen. And by that, what I mean is uh, it just it might just be my impression, but I feel like um, there's uh, there've been more large corporations in the past. Again, it might just be my impression, right? Like, um, uh, like it, this is an empirical question. Like, it's something probably that um, that uh, we would need to look into more carefully. But I think people are actually responding to, I don't want to be another uh, sort of uh, cog or another, uh, uh, like another tool in the entire machinery. I want to be, uh, regarded as a person. I want to be regarded. I want to know the value that I'm bringing to the company and that the company understands that. I, and I think um, that sort of what began as an undercurrent, I, th- um, I think it's beginning to rise to the top. And I think especially in the, with the younger generation, I think that's the reason why we see a lot of emphasis on um, who they're looking uh, working for. Right? It's uh, one of the things I've noticed, and I think this is really great, is that um, the uh, the generation that's now graduating from college and now entering the workplace, they're very um, uh, very conscious about uh, the employers that they're working for. It's not, so it's not just the name. It's not just the, uh, for instance, the, um, they're not looking at the name and saying, oh, it's Goldman Sachs. They're looking at the company to be like, okay, so what type of company are you? Like, what do you believe in? How do you treat your um, employees? Those are really important factors for them. And if they feel that they're not being treated right, um, they uh, they uh, go, all right, like, okay, uh, thanks for all the experiences, but um, this, you and I are not a good fit. So I'm going to look for a different uh, position to work for now at a different company. And I think um, that, uh, again, I think that's a really great thing, right? Like, I think it's a response to the particular uh, dissatisfaction that uh, you, Trevor, just brought up. And we're now moving, uh, we're kind of swinging back towards sort of that world where employers are um, are beginning to treat their workers better, beginning to uh, treat their workers act as valued human beings and, va- and who bring really valuable things to uh, the company. That's an interesting point because it gets to something I think a lot of people overlook when in their general perspective of kind of the morality of markets, which is that there are employers are market participants too. They're not just and corporations are market participants. They're not just the people providing us with this stuff that then we're, you know, competing with each other to buy or get more of or whatever, but that like they are subject to it. And so if if we decide that we are going to hold employers to a stronger moral standard, they need us as much as we need them. And so we can start to push them in this more other regarding respectful direction. And of course, there are lots of good employers, but like the bad ones will be subject to this market force too. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree with that. And I think, um, uh, Again, I might be wrong on this, but um, and like the uh, what is it? The corporate social responsibility is now a thing, right? And uh, uh, when I was working at um, Saint Vincent College in the business school, I remember picking up a textbook and seeing that there's a section on uh, social corp- uh, corporate social responsibility and how that all is um, an a integral part of what makes a successful um, com- uh, firm now, and I think 
it 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 is the case that uh, it feels that employers and companies are these in the moment sort of powerful uh, forces that um, seem to uh, be uh, felt as immovable and that one person or a group of um, employees can't actually change them or even uh, customers, right? But I think, but you're absolutely right, Erin, like these are um, organizations uh, made up of, uh, you know, uh, people who respond to um, others' needs within the market. And if they're no longer serving the needs of others um, uh, in society and in the market um, sufficiently, then they will sort of eve out of existence. Um, and if they don't know how to adapt to changing circumstances, changing desires, um, and changing, um, you know, the, uh, the entire atmosphere changing, if they just can't respond to it, then they won't survive. It seems that an important point here, before getting into kind of the empirical parts of how we're going to measure morality and things like this, um, it seems that an important point here is compared to what, like if there are, if you object to hierarchies that make that objectify you and turn your labor into the sum total of your value as a person does alternative methods of government and economic systems do a better job of not objectifying you. Uh, and I think we can safely say that, those who lived in the Soviet Union or in communist China are kind of being objectified in an interesting way because nations like that tend to objectify their people as inputs into a large national output device. So, you know, you get North Korea, everyone's got to do calisthenics at like 10 and 2 every day because your life is not your own. You're part of a machine. Um, so when we talk about, yes, different hierarchies when someone has power over you sucks, uh, but it but it kind of is you have to kind of weigh one against the other and say, well, do these governing institutions make people more moral? Um, do you get into that in the book in the sense – I mean the one that is in the philosophical literature at least is the deliberative democracy people, the people who very much believe that if we all got together like a homeowners association or something and talked about everything, we, we would be – we become actually better people in the process of deliberating and things like that. So do you kind of do any of that weighing that if – Markets, you know, maybe there are bad sides to markets. Not maybe there are definitely bad sides to markets, uh, but there are really bad sides to government that need to be weighed against that. Yeah. So um, the book is narrowly a response to the uh, criticism that uh, uh, markets are morally corrupting. So when we were uh, thinking about how to respond to that, we narrowly sort of thought about. Um, just the markets. In other words, we didn't um, uh, we didn't look at, for instance, democracy uh, more specifically or anything like that. And we, um, but nothing that we say in the book uh, says anything about democracy or any um, other political institution. Um, the uh, the response we have is um, simply on the basis of uh, whether or not a particular society is more embracing or less embracing. Of markets and the important. Uh, sometimes I wish uh, we made a sort of stronger point on this in the book, and it is that uh, it is incredibly important for uh, whichever 
economic institution is in place, uh, which are, whether it's markets or whether it's something else, that it needs to be uh, integrated and supporting um, and supported by the political institution and the social institution. So um, if those, um, if the polity, society, and um, economy, the institutions that are in place are not meshing well with, an- with one another, if they have core values that are in um, start um, sort of uh, competition with one another. And like, uh, I don't know whether that society or rather that country works right. Um, so um, it's while we don't say uh, nothing that in the book says anything about the types of social institutions, the type of um, political institutions of a particular country, I think it's really important to also note that whichever political institution is in place for markets to be uh, operating at its best needs to also be an institution that embraces uh, liberty. And if it's an institution that doesn't embrace liberty, I don't know how a market is that a market, an economic uh, institution that embraces mark, uh, sorry, liberty at, at the core, I don't know what that market looks like if the political uh, institutions uh, is about, say, coercion. I want to turn now to some of the common objections to markets or the common like, senses that we have about the way that they might corrupt us or make us worse. Um, and we'll start with this one. We're recording this a week before Thanksgiving, which means a week and a day before Black Friday, which has now also come to be known as Buy Nothing Day, according to the internet. And this ties into one of the concerns I think a lot of people have about markets, which is, you know, I mean, your book is very good at pointing out the ways that markets make us wealthier and people in markets have longer lifespans and more access to stuff and so on. Like all of that's good, but that the very nature of a market or of of companies in a market is convincing us we want what they are providing and that we're willing to pay for it. And that means convincing us that we never have enough, um, that we should always have more, and and that we should want more than the people next to us or that status is bound up in how much we have relative. And so all of this turns us into kind of materialistic consumers who are buying lots of things, worrying about what things we are going to buy next or aren't able to buy, working long hours in jobs we don't like in order to buy those things, and that none of this is making us happy and that all of this is kind of encouraging us to be vicious or at least not not wise about our own well-being. Is there, I mean, is there any truth to any of that? I think um, it is incredibly hard um, as human beings um, to um, achieve a, um, like as a species, uh, achieve a uh, a state where we're not envious of one another. And I don't mean it to be sort of uh, pessimistic or anything, but um, I've you know, like when uh, when I was younger, I'm an only child, right? Like I have no siblings that I'm competing with well, for anything. And even then I was, you know, like I displayed a lot of envy and jealousy about what other um, kids, my friends were getting from um, their parents. And in some sense, that's weird, right? Like my parents are able to uh, res- or respond to a lot of my um, needs. In fact, they 
um, they, uh, it is my opinion that they spoiled me pretty badly. So I got everything that I wanted and yet I still had that. Um, and so I think it's, um, the, um, uh, keeping up with the Joneses is kind of, it's a, it's a, uh, it's just something that happens because we live amongst a group of people. And I don't think that's necessarily a, um, a, I might be wrong on this. It's just my, um, and I just don't, um, have, uh, um, the evidence for it, but my guess is even if you, uh, had a community that had little contact with the market or the market was not operating in that community, my guess is a type of envy for others would still, um, will still, uh, be in existence. So, and yeah, and I, I'm, there's, I don't know what, uh, you know, like, I don't know, um, if I get that, um, there's a sense of that that, um, that gets really sort of uh, heightened in times like um, thanks to Black Friday in the United States, um, on Boxing Day in the United Kingdom and all that. And I totally get that happens. Um, but it's not clear to me that kind of um, uh, the phenomena that underlies consumerism is in fact just is a characteristic that is specific to markets alone. One of the ways that we can think about what it means to be a moral person is in generally how we treat others and, and, you know, what we, what we do or don't do for them. And one of the really striking things reading your book as you're, you're mustering this wealth of empirical data um, is that when we think about, especially like kind of anti-market people or people on the far left who are like, if we just, you know, if we if we got rid of markets and we got rid of competition and we all took care of each other, these are the things that that would mean. And it would mean like everyone would get a good education and everyone would have enough to eat and everyone would have autonomy and the ability to do, you know, what matters to them uh, and we wouldn't hurt each other. And And then your book is just like, whole sections of it are just here are the instances like in a market people have better educations or higher literacy or more healthy so it's like we are whether we're intending to or not we're treating each other in a more moral way could you run through some of that that evidence for the ways that we kind of are our lives are better and we're better at providing in markets yeah, so um, generally, um, when we were sort of thinking about how to um, organize the vast amounts of um, empirical um, information that uh, we looked at, um, the way we thought about it uh, was to categor- um, to sort of split them up into um, two uh, different chapters. And so the chapters that I'm referring to is chapter four and five. And originally that chapter uh, was just meant to be one. <laughs> so um, so we, it, it was something that as we were writing, we we're like, oh, there's a lot of things going on here and we need to, let's, uh, there's a better way to organize this. Um, and generally speaking, it turns out uh, when we looked at, we went to the data, when we went to the, uh, the empirical literature, um, people are, um, are not, not only living better lives um, because of the market, 
they are also improving their own lives uh, uh, through the market um, as well. So as you said, Aaron, there's um, uh, people in um, market societies um, have better education. They live longer lives. In addition, they uh, are able to better take care of themselves. Uh, we found um, that, for instance, um, they're able to, um, they're spending, uh, their uh, health expenditures in market societies were larger than those in non-market societies. And it's not just expenditure. I think the, um, it, um, my sense is part of the reason why they're able to spend more is because there's more facilities and more options available to actually address a lot of the um, health issues that um, citizens have. In addition, there's um, all this basic infrastructure that allows um, citizens in uh, market societies to uh, to live better lives, right? So they have uh, more access to um, clean water. They have um, more access to um, internet. They have more access to uh, uh, telephone. Um, they have, um, and they have much more well-developed railways. And these are um, simply just looking at the um, uh, the data that um, that was made available to us, and, and on, um, these um, as because of how the nature of data collection goes and all of that, like it's, um, I know that's not a perfect thing, and and nowadays, at least for uh, for uh, many of us in uh, in the U.S., uh, railways are less of a uh, of a transportation option than it is for others like in Europe and all that. And I, to- and I know that some of these um, sort of data uh, could seem sort of a little outdated, um, but I think it's an indicator that people um, are able to live and have better facilities available uh, to them to live better lives. Um, and yeah, like when some of the other things that we found is we, um, that on a daily basis, uh, people in non-market societies uh, have higher caloric intake. And, um, and yeah, so in generally speaking, we just are healthier and we're uh, and we're um, happier and we're able to live better lives um, through markets. But are we more moral? Uh, the I mean, it seems like there are some natural experiments that could be run to test morality. I mean, there's some of these studies like dropping a wallet and seeing if people return it kind of thing but that you know it, but there have been some natural experiments in recent years for example you know perhaps a, you know pre-soviet poland and post-soviet poland or i mean north korea and south korea are relatively recently split now it might be hard to go gather empirical data in north korea uh, there are a lot of north koreans though actually who defected or are in south korea so i mean do we have data where we can actually say like you know does this person Aside from being caloric intake and and being able to travel more and have a better life, are they better people, or if not better, worse? Not worse, at least. Yeah. So um, there's some um, a couple of things that I could um, say to that. Um, uh, first, um, there we um, looked at some a couple of uh, survey measures that are able to that got at satisfaction in life uh, of the particular people in different um, countries. And in terms of the proportion of people who reported to have 
um, to be satisfied with their lives. And the number of people who um, indicated that um, on a scale of one to 10, that they are quite um, satisfied uh, with their lives. A lot more people and for both measures in market societies that they're more satisfied with life than um, others. Now, the difficulty uh, with um, using um, data as all um, and anyone who uh, ha- uh, works with data can say is um, we were able to take a look at virtue-like behaviors and behaviors that, um, that um, suggest things about um, uh, of people's inners or dispositions and all of that. It's incredibly hard for data to genuinely get at uh, virtue, which is why um, we took a really wide and broad approach when it came to um, the empirical sections in our book. We knew that from the uh, we knew that um, looking at the data, um, especially when it came to looking at virtue and vices, that um, they weren't. There's not going to be one measure that <laughs> that would solve everything. I, I mean, it would have certainly made our life so much easier if there was this one data that did everything, but um, it doesn't. And um, so uh, we. Um, we get that um, some of the data, uh, the variables that we look at is not going to be satisfactory. But when we look at all of the um, data across the board together, granted, one of them is not going to be satisfactory. It's um, certainly um, not going to be getting at sort of the, the thrust of our argument. But when you look at the data as a whole, it suggests something about people in market societies that critics of um, markets um, completely said that shouldn't be happening. In fact, and uh, and if the critics were right, we should be seeing a lot of other things happening um, on a daily basis. Uh, for instance, when we go to coffee shops and all, uh, we shouldn't see people <laughs> just standing in line. Actually. Funny thing happened over the pandemic. So our, one of my local Starbucks, um, actually the one on campus, has like a set of ropes that helps um, sort of manage the really long queues that can happen between breaks and all of that. And over the pandemic, they got rid of it. But the um, sticker on the floor remained. Hilariously, I was the only person in um, who visited the uh, who was in that Starbucks that day. But I noticed myself following the stickers. There's no ropes or anything but here I am just following the sticker and um and I while like the reason why I noticed is because when I saw another student come in a one sole student like I also saw that students were following the lines and I think um that you know like those are sort of incredible sort of um, daily experiences that says something about the people that live um in societies and we just need to uh you know also uh, sort of think of that as we're looking at um, everything. And, and I don't mean to say like, let's, uh, uh, I'm not suggesting that we be biased or I'm not suggesting that we uh, look at um, cherry pick our data as, uh, as we think about um, the narrative. But, uh, and when we look at, again, the entire data um, across the board together, it suggests something about 
the people who live in those societies. One of the things we think of rightfully as a as a virtue is charity. And you do talk about the difference in charity between market and non-market societies. What does the data show there? Yeah, the um, the data that we looked at, um, uh, we uh, there's a uh, to my recollection, uh, recollection, there's a couple of variables um, that are associated with um, donations. But the two that we looked at was uh, the uh, proportion of people who reported saying that they had donated or um, or volunteered um, in the last month. And um, we looked at, um, if I remember correctly, the, um, the amount um, of donation that they provided. And in both cases, um, the um, member of those who live in market societies um, uh, donated and or volunteered more <clears throat> frequently, in the la- at least in the last month, and also um, donated more money in the last month than those who lived in um, non-market societies. And um, one of the things that I think is really really great about it is, um, yes, it's true that uh, one of the things that you could say is people in market societies just have more money, so therefore they're allowed to give more. Like that seems like an unfair sort of um, thing to put against people of other countries who have less to spare and all of that. But I think that uh, material, uh, material improvement has moral consequences. And one of the things that we're able to do as a result of um, being uh, wealthier, being more prosperous, is that we can actually take care of other people. And, and we seem to have more interest in taking care of others, um, as well, according to uh, one of the measures that we looked at. Do we know anything about the difference between the quote-unquote rich, putting that a big quote, relatively quote, rich? Um, because, I mean, especially now, recent years, we've been having a lot of discussion of the 1% and these people who uh, sometimes are presumed to be a little more than like uh, Scrooge McDuck or the Monopoly man, um, just, uh, you know, the, the classic image of the rapacious capitalist. And there is a there is a story that you get told a lot by Hollywood movies about the very, very happy poor man and the very, very miserable rich man. Um, is there any reason to believe that there's a difference between I mean, the morality of those people uh, the, uh, between relatively poor and relatively rich people? I think, um, so I can't, um, so I certainly can't speak to the morality of um, different people, but there's one thing that, um, that I think um, I could um, sort of mention, which is that um, I think, Bad apples exist everywhere, right? And I think regardless of what type of uh, institution that we're um, living in, uh, there's always going to be bad apples. The benefit of living in a market society is that we get to know about the bad apples, um, whereas um, in, uh, in places like uh, the Soviet Union and USSR in the past, when bad apples did rise to the top, they're able to take control and secure their um, status and secure their reputation and just remain on top and push, um, re- uh, keep others down. Um, so I think that uh, 
um, the important thing that I want to highlight here is that while um, bad apples can rise to the top, once they rise to the top in market societies, there, we have more ways of uh, punishing them, if you will, if they, um, uh, if they own companies. If we don't agree with the way the CEO um, is behaving or the way the CEO has sort of um, um, spoken about certain uh, groups of people in the past, uh, recently and things like that. We, um, a lot of consumers punish them by boycotting their company, by buying less of their products. Uh, those types of feedback mechanism, types of punishing behavior that, um, that, um, that, uh, that, provides feedback for these, uh, the rich to sort of mo- uh, change their behavior, moderate their behavior, those forces don't exist in um, non-market societies, or rather, uh, or not, um, I mean non-market here, not in the sense of, um, uh, uh, not in the sense of um, they're, they're less embracing or anything like that. I mean it as in countries that have, very strict institutions that um, don't allow those kinds of feedback, don't, don't allow those kinds of uh, information to be easily shared. In the book, you talk about markets, not just, so you're not just pushing back on the markets make us worse. That's, that's part of the book. But you also make the positive case. Um, so you move away from this minimalist defense of markets, as you refer to it. And instead say that markets are moral spaces or moral training grounds. What do you mean by that? And how does that impact the way that we should think about being market participants or the way that we should think about potentially limiting or regulating markets? One of the things that um, I think is really unfortunate about the way we talk about markets and certainly the way we um, teach market now teach what a market is in economics is that um, we don't view market actors as uh, human beings who are having interacting with one another uh, within a particular space um, negotiating um, their different um, intensity of desires and um, sort of um, trying to get um, the things that they want in that space and um, when we say that markets are moral spaces and um, are moralizing spaces, we are precisely referring to all those social interactions that happen um, in the market. So, for instance, uh, when you have when you encounter um, somebody um, who's really awesome, who's a uh, who seems to be an honest person, who seems to be um, trustworthy, reliable, a promise keeper, um, willing to um, help. Uh, one out when um, they are in a struggle. We want to be friends with them. We want to keep going back to them. We want to continue uh, continue to uh, to um, interact with them. That's true in a social space. So so why wouldn't it be true in the market space as well? And we see that happening, right? Like when there's a we there might be a um, a company that charges a little bit more. Like for instance, um, I was on the market recently for an HVAC company and. Um, you know, the HVAC company that I, uh, that I eventually so settle with, it's not the cheapest, um, but a lot of their uh, reviews that I've seen of um, past deals is that they will work with you. They will 
um, spend a lot of time explaining to you what's going on. They'll, um, they'll do their best to sort of explain to you what the different options are. And, um, and I think, and people say, you know, this is the type of, um, the reason why I chose this company and I, I'm continuing to work with this HVAC company is because um, they were, um, they were great. They were human beings who knew that I had constraints and they worked with my constraints and we uh, worked it out. And that's, um, that's so important in the market space as well. Like we don't always just go for the cheapest things. I'm, I'm not, you know, again, so dismissing that there are times that we go for the cheapest thing. You're like, um, and that will happen. Um, but if we're thinking about um, a who to um, a business partner that we want to uh, we want to uh, enter a contract with, or if we're thinking about the um, the um, you know signing a contract with a landlord or something like that, we want to be working with people who are um, who are enjoyable to work with, who are reliable, and that's what we mean when we talk about the market being a moralizing space. Those are the particular things that are happening. And if you encounter a bad apple, um, again, if you encounter a uh, person who cheats their business partners left and right, and they have this particular reputation, we know that they're not. Oh, they're not going to have. They might be able to get new business partners that they're able to sort of uh, sort of deceive into working with them, maybe, uh, but. For those who have already had experiences with them, it's unlikely that they will return back to that business partner. And as a result, that that dishonest uh, market actor is going to have to change their behavior. It's going to in, in order to survive in that environment. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.